Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to uh, Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And we want to uh, look at uh, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Do not worry. Do not worry. I know this only affects a very small number of you, but uh, a little sarcasm there. We all attempted to worry, aren't we? About something, so, somewhere, some, sometime, pretty sure. Anyway, it speaks to us where we're at, that's for sure. Lord, we uh, thank you for this, uh, this section of the scripture. Uh, the inspired word of God is, is given from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that uh, we would apply it. We would take it to heart. We would be strengthened in our faith even as we study the scriptures this morning. So we commit our time in the word to you now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The theme of Matthew is Christ the King. We have worked our way down to uh, chapters 5 through 7, which is called the, the greatest sermon ever given. Uh, we commonly call it the Sermon on the Mount. And really, uh, what it consists of is the pronouncements of the king providing his judicial right to the throne as seen in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching. No one ever taught like Jesus Christ. Uh, his wisdom was uh, irrefutable. Uh, he never lost an argument, you know, really. His arguments were very short, really, <laughs> uh, consisting of putting people in their place, so to speak. Uh, we see that time and time again. Well, after emphasizing the way to the kingdom is through repentance, Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 5 what repentance is then to look like in the lives of his disciples. In chapter 6, Jesus compared, if you will, the, the showmanship religion of the hypocrites with the genuineness that is to now characterize his true disciples. Well, in so doing, Jesus dealt with three areas of piety, namely almsgiving, praying, and fasting. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, he deals with a proper attitude towards money and materialism. And he exhorts us to lay our treasures up in heaven and not on the earth. There's really a threefold challenge here in effect. Where is my treasure? Where is my focus? And who or what is my master? Those three questions. These really are the great issues in life. Well, the danger of wealth is that one may become a slave to it, to where you end up serving mammon, that is materialism, instead of God. On the other hand, on the other hand, if one does not have much of this world's goods, the temptation is to worry. Worry. Am I going to have enough? Am I going to get by? People spend their whole life worrying about when I get to the end, am I going to have enough? We're saving for it. You know, it's enough. You know, we're, we're constantly concerned. John Phillips says, wealth and worry are opposite problems, but they can be equally distracting to spiritual life. How true that is. Well, Christ addressed the issue of wealth or mammon last time in 6, 19 through 24, telling us this should not be the, the essential focus of our lives. Yes, we are to be responsible, but it's not what we live for. But now he goes on to address the issue of worrying about not having enough, as seen in 6, 25 through 34. Both hoarding and worrying are sin. In both cases, the issue is a lack of trust in God. So let's pick it up. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, 
nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The word therefore here ties with what Jesus has just said regarding having the proper attitude towards money slash materialism. He has just addressed the issue of laying up treasure. And now he goes on to address the issue of of worrying about not having enough. I mean, if you're really going, if you're really going to take Jesus serious and you're you're really going to focus on laying your treasure up in heaven, uh, what about having enough to get by while you're still on earth, right? That's a good question. Well, that's what Jesus here addresses. And he said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The key word here is worry. Jesus is not encouraging irresponsibility. Rather, he's addressing the issue of sinful worry. The word worry literally means to be drawn in different directions. Uh, Worry serves to, in effect, tear us up. It is to be emotionally torn apart. Worry really makes a mess out of you. Ed Glasscock says, Worry is to become so fixed upon a concern that one's thinking and energy are dominated. And a lack of trust in God's provision is demonstrated. Well, as you study the whole counsel of God, you will find that there is a difference between worry and proper concern. There's a difference between worry and being properly responsible. There's a difference between worry and proper planning. Jesus is addressing here the issue of sinful worry. Now, uh, do not worry is an imperative, meaning it's a command. It's a command. And Jesus is talking about the necessities of life related to food, drink, and clothing. These are very basic things, right? What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And here in verse 25, Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser, saying, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Life has a greater purpose than just food and clothing. Uh, William MacDonald says, This type of worry causes us to devote our finest energies to making sure we have enough to live on. Then before we know it, our lives have passed, and we have missed the central purpose for which we were made. Indeed, how true that is. Life is not merely about preoccupation with food and clothing, with obtaining stuff. You see, we were created for God. Our major preoccupation in life is to be with God and the things of God. Years ago, we had an evangelist come to our church. He was here a number of times. Sam Dalton was his name. And and in conversation, Sam told me about a, a man that they had in their church who was just so busy all the time. I mean, he didn't have time for anything. He didn't have time for his family. didn't have time for the church. didn't have time to serve. He was just busy. I mean, he was making a living, just so busy. And Sam said, I told him that he's going to work himself to death and that his family's going to feed better after he's gone. And Sam said, and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Yes, we need to make a living, but our life should be for God. Yes, we need to make a living, but life is more than food and clothing. I have a brother who is an over-the-road truck driver. And uh, my brother says to me, yeah, I make a good living, but it's not much of a life. 
That's what you told me. I like to kind of apply that principle to what Jesus is saying here. There's a lot of people who make a good living, but in the end, it's not much of a life. Not in light of eternity. Not in terms of the priorities that God has for our life. Moody Bible Commentary. God gives the greater gifts, life and one's body, and will supply the lesser ones, food and clothing. That is where Jesus goes in the text here today. Well, Jesus then points to nature to illustrate the emphasis that he is making. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Let's all go over to the window now. No, I'm just kidding. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Rhetorical question. Rhetorical question. Are you not of more value than they? Here's an illustration of God's providential care. If anything in this world is a picture of carefree, it is the birds of the air. You know, they fly about here and there, seemingly without a care in the world, right? When's the last time you saw a nervous bird other than the one you're ready to shoot? (laughs) Birds are completely dependent upon God's providential care. They don't sow, right? You don't see them out planting. It's planting season. They're, they're not out there planting. They're not, they don't harvest at the end of the season. They're not bringing in a harvest. Yet, our Heavenly Father feeds them. God takes care of the birds. They are reliant upon Him for their food. Yes, it is pointed out that even the birds do have to work for their food, right? God supplies, but they do have to work. God doesn't throw the worms up into their nest, right? I mean, they got to get out of their nest and go get it, right? And we often say the early bird gets the worm, right? Yeah. God provides, but he often does it through the means of hard work. However, Christ's point here is that God providentially takes care of the birds. And then he rhetorically asks, are you not of more value than they? And the expected answer is... Of course, we are of much more value to God than birds. And you know why, right? Because we were created in the very image of God. Humankind, mankind is the crowning work of God's creation. There's nothing more precious to God than you are. I like this uh, little saying. And those of you in the front row can enjoy it with me. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. A little bit of sarcasm there. But, uh, you know, I like what Jesus said here. You know, a little bit of bird therapy is good for your theology. Uh, go out and look at the birds. How they doing? You know, I was listening this morning. I like, I like this time of year. I crack my window. That fresh air is coming in there. And, and I wake up with the birds. And you know how the birds wake up in the morning? They wake up singing every morning. Uh, I don't think they're saying, oh my, let's sing, you know. And of course, they're not worrying about anything. 
God's eye is on the sparrow, and he cares for you and me as well. We need to remember who it is that feeds us. He feeds the birds, and he takes care of us. How Christ taught us to pray is a continual reminder of this. Remember how he taught us to pray earlier in the chapter? Give us this day our daily bread. And the birds remind us that it is normally God's providential care that provides for us. Meaning God does it in the normal course of life through sovereignly controlling the circumstances of life. Well, here Jesus emphasizes that if the lesser thing, the feeding of the birds, is true, assuredly God will also accomplish the greater thing, that is feeding us as well. And then he says in verse 27, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? The language here is a little bit ambiguous because of the word cubit and the word stature. However, stature can also be used in reference to lifespan as seen, for example, in John 9, 21. A cubit is actually 18 inches in length. Uh, It seems a little absurd even to think about it, let alone worry about adding 18 inches to your height, right? Uh, I I haven't done that for a while now, have you? Uh, Maybe when you're 12 years old, you're worried about it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, really, you don't normally walk around thinking, man, I'm worrying about whether I'm going to get... Longer, taller. Uh, Most commentators think the flow of thought here relates to the quality of life and better relates here to lifespan. Uh, D.A. Carson says, most likely the linear measure is being used in a metaphorical sense akin to passing a milestone at one's birthday. Worry never changes anything for the better. It can't improve your circumstances. It can't add anything to your lifespan. In fact, it might make it shorter. Uh, Dr. Charles Mayo of the famous Mayo Clinic said, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. I've never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. Worry is not healthy. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. That's true. It doesn't get you anywhere. So Jesus says, verse 28, So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Jesus here continues to emphasize God's providential care as seen in nature. God provides food for the birds, and he provides clothing for the flowers of the field. Now, Jesus probably spoke of the wild flowers that grow quickly in the Holy Land after those springtime rains. And these flowers, they don't toil. That is, they don't labor. They don't spin. That is, spin and design as as one might do with thread. They don't do that. And yet, God clothes them in a most beautiful fashion. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You understand Solomon was the wealthiest and the most decorated king in the history of Israel. In all his glory, he was not arrayed like a single one of these beautiful wildflowers. I still remember the beautiful flowers in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. They'd have these these pots of flowers uh, along the streets. Some of the most beautiful flowers I've ever seen in my life. But out in the the hillside, uh, during the rainy season, uh, this is a picture from Israel. 
wildflowers. Wow, that's beautiful. Solomon wasn't arrayed this, this well. Beautiful, gorgeous. Who, who's responsible for this? Well, God. God clothes them. So Jesus says, verse 30, verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We are of much more value than the birds, and the birds are a higher form than the life of the grass. So how much more must God care about us? That's his point. Even the insignificant grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, is clothed by God. Now, the practice of the Jews was to collect these wildflowers and dry them out and then use them for fuel, uh, for heating, for cooking. But the point is they had a very short lifespan, a very small amount of long-term value. But even these relatively insignificant flowers served a purpose and were clothed with great beauty by God. Well, how much more then can we expect God to clothe us? And then Jesus applies a mild rebuke saying, O you of little faith. This is really a faith issue. Can we really depend upon God to provide for us? Before God, life is essentially a faith issue. This is the great issue in life, the great responsibility before God. Am I going to trust God? The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. The first thing anyone ever does, and we only come to believe by the grace of God itself, uh, we, never, we get no credit for anything whatsoever. But we come into a saving relationship with God through faith. But then after we are saved, he wants us to walk by faith. We're saved by faith. And then we are to walk by faith, trusting him to meet our needs. Note just uh, these scriptures to make the point here in Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it starts with faith. Pleasing God starts with faith. And then in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we appease with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we come into a right relationship with God? Well, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. Not by works. Not by what we do. But by faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, which is everything. I mean, it is finished, he said. He paid the full price. And then Colossians 2, 6 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. And how do we receive him? Well, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You receive him by believing. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, that is, by faith, so walk in him. You receive him by faith, and now you're to walk by faith. Now, faith in the Bible is taking God at his word. Uh, it trusts in his character to do what he says. Faith in the Bible is always connected to the Word of God and what He says. It's not attached. Faith is not attached to my ideas. Say, well, I came up with this great idea and I just believe in it. You know, and the world wants to say, believe, believe, believe. 
Believe what? Why? What's the object of our faith? Well, it's the word of God and it's the God of the word. You know, we go back to Abraham. He's the great model of faith in the Bible. There's lots of models, but Abraham's the key one. And in Genesis 15, 4 through 6, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, I've underlined word of the Lord there, because that's significant. Um, He didn't just decide in a vacuum, well, I'm going to believe God. You know, I'm going to name it, and I'm going to claim it. No, 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 that's not how it happened. God named it, and he in faith claimed it. Behold the word of the Lord. You know, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. It's not going to be a relative here, Abram. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then it says, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram believed in the Lord in the sense that he believed God could and would bring to pass what he had promised. That's faith. It's always connected to what God says. And saving faith in the New Testament is connected to what God says about his son. The gospel story. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we believe it. To believe the word of God is to believe in his character, his power, and his faithfulness. Well, here in Matthew 6, Jesus revealed that the cause for sinful anxiety and worry is a lack of faith. It comes down to that. It's a lack of faith. Oh, you of little faith. Worry shows that we doubt the promise of God or we don't believe that he's able to do what he says. And that's really an insult to Almighty God. You know something? He can take care of us. You ever think about all the billions of people in this world? That's a, that's a pretty big job. God's a big God. It's a big God. He can take care of us. You know, the culture's a mess. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's a mess. But God is still our Father. That hasn't changed. When you got up this morning, God was still on the throne, and He's still your Father. Politics is a mess. But God is still our Father. We see concerns all around, but, but I don't know if you've noticed, but, but the birds are still eating. The flowers are still looking good. How much more is our Heavenly Father still able to take care of us? I'd say if the birds are starving to death and the flowers are looking ugly, we got a problem. But the birds are still eating and the flowers are still being clothed very nicely. God's able to take care of us. He's still our Father. He's still God. You know, this just in, the politicians are really not in ultimate sovereign charge. Now, if you're dealing with anxiety, let me encourage you to just get away from it all. Go out and look at the birds for a while. I mean, that's what Jesus said to do. Go look at the birds. You having a problem with anxiety? Go out into your backyard and just study the birds for a while. Just, just focus on them for a while. Let them teach you some sound theology. Are you worried? Check out the flowers. You know, you might 
you don't want to overdo it. The neighbors might report you or something. But, uh, but they're not here by accident in all their glory. God closed them in this way. And he's able to take care of you too. It's easy to worry. You know, I'm a grandparent now. It's, it's easy for me to start worrying about my grandchildren. I've ceased to worry about my children. They're all lost causes. Just kidding. Just kidding. You know, we do worry about our kids, our grandkids. We often say, well, I'm not worried about me, right? As we get a little older, I'm not worried about me, but I'm worried about my grandchildren, whatever. Well, Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry. The antidote to worry is to check out the birds and the flowers and then realize that you are of much more value to your heavenly father than any of these. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. You can trust him. You believe that this morning? You say, wow, that, you mean I can just let go of my anxiety? I don't have to worry about these things? Right, right, right. You're tracking. That's right. Little faith implies a deficiency of faith. Not a total absence of it. I mean, if you've got a little faith, you have something of faith, right? You have faith. It's just you don't have much. You need more. Remember, Jesus is addressing followers who already know God as their heavenly father. Meaning, they are people of faith. That's how you become a child of God, through faith. So these are children of God. They're disciples. But they're lacking faith. There's a deficiency in their faith. You see, you can be a person of faith and yet have little faith. Jesus wants us to be people of great faith. Trusting him for everything. This expression, little faith, is used four times in the Gospel of Matthew and and consistently is a means of chastising his disciples and a reproof of their, their need to grow in faith. Verse 31, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? If someone is struggling, we as God's people realize it's probably not the proper thing to say, you know, as they share their concerns with us and they're struggling with something, we don't say, I will be worrying for you, right? We we don't say that, do we? If you do, I I really want you to repent, (laughs) No, we know that's not right. Instead, what do we say? I'll be praying for you. That's the right response. Not worry, but prayer. Uh, Worry is like everything's dependent upon me. And that is a reason to worry, all right. But prayer says, God, we're depending on you. And that's not the place of worry. Prayer is dependence upon God. So when you're worrying, you're depending on you. When you're praying, you're depending on God. God wants us to pray. And what an incredible privilege we have to pray. And God clearly instructs us that instead of worrying, we should pray. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him. For he cares. He cares for you. Now we should note that there is a difference between sinful worrying and being troubled. 
You know, being human, there are times when we will be troubled in our soul about various things, and that's not necessarily sin. You know, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul spoke of a time when he had no rest being troubled on every side. He says, quote, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. At different times, Jesus was troubled, but he never sinned. In the face of the cross, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled, John 12, 27. Being human, we will at times be troubled. It's kind of like be angry and sin not. There is a time for proper anger. Sin should anger us, especially our own. There's a time for proper anger, but, but we must not let it lead to sin. And there's a time when it's understandable that we are troubled, but we must not let it lead to the sin of worry. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, by the way, Gethsemane means oil press. The place of the press of the soul of Jesus. And Jesus said on that occasion, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Matthew 26, 36. Talk about being in the vice of the press of his soul. But what did Jesus do about it? Well, he went to prayer. He bathed his soul in intense prayer. And then as the betrayer and the regiment came to arrest him, Jesus went forth with great power and peace. The issue is not that we're never troubled, not that we don't ever face anxiety. The issue is how do we deal with it? And the God-given answer is, is that instead of being anxious, we are to handle everything with prayer, taking it to God, depending on God. Prayer is the antidote for worry. We find our peace in God in taking everything to Him. The night before Jesus Christ was crucified, He said to His disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. And He went on to say, Peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you. The cure for a troubled heart is faith, and faith is expressed in prayer, in dependence upon God. And by the way, if you're struggling, ask him to help you. He knows all about it. We're all human. We're all frail. We're all weak. None of us are perfect. We're all in process. Ask him to help you in the struggle. See, I'm really wrestling with anxiety. Bring that to him. Cast your cares upon him. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring it to him. He'll help you. Verse 32. Jesus continues, for after all these things, this is the basics of life, the necessities of life, after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. The Gentiles represent those who don't know God, those who are not in covenant relationship with Him. And since they don't know God, they give their whole life in seeking to provide for themselves. And they're always worried about it. You know that? They're always worried about it. They worry about the economy. Don't they? Yeah. You remember that political slogan years ago? It's the economy, stupid. I mean, for the world, that is great wisdom. It's the economy, stupid. They worry about their job. They worry about the news, which would scare anybody in their right mind. I mean, we used to have horror films. Now we have the news. I mean, it's enough to terrify you. It's, it's not mentally healthy to listen to it too much. 
honestly. If they can scare you, they will. But Christ is really dealing with an attitude, a matter of the heart. And the issue is faith. And Christ tells his people not to worry and obsess over the basic necessities of life. Are you kidding? If there's anything we should worry about, it's those those basic necessities. I mean, if we don't have that, we're going to die. Says Christ says, don't worry and obsess over these basic necessities of life because you have a heavenly father and he knows that you need all these things. It's not like God is distracted and saying, oh, oh, I forgot about that. I guess they need some food. He knows. He knows that you need all these things. He knows and he cares. And that changes everything. In reality, we are not really providing for ourselves. God provides for us just like he does for the birds. Yes, we still have to work. But beyond our working is the fact that God is at work. Our work is really the reality of his work. And knowing this changes everything. At least it should in terms of our whole outward disposition. And our tendency to want to worry. We know that as we ask God for our daily bread, that he already knows what we need. We're not informing him of anything. We're depending upon him and expressing our dependence upon him. And as believers, we are to have confidence in our all-powerful, all-caring Heavenly Father. You know, the image of Father in the Scriptures, and Jesus uses Father, Father, I don't know, was it 18 times in the Sermon on the Mount? It's many times. It's a beautiful picture in the Scriptures. Father and caring goes together in the Scriptures. Well, this should put our minds at ease. You can rest in the fact that God is your Father and that He truly cares for you. You're not on your own. You're not on your own to make it happen. God is behind you. He's supporting you. He's helping you. He provides your daily bread. Believe it. That's what Jesus is saying. But let me ask you this. If God already knows what we need, why do we need to ask him? Well, as I've already pointed out, the reason for prayer is that it expresses dependence upon God. God knows, but he wants us to recognize our dependence upon him as our father. And as we depend upon him in prayer, he answers prayer. And as we see God answer our prayers, it makes us realize that he is the living, moving God who is our personal father, who is at work on our behalf. And that brings glory to him. And so Jesus says, conclusion of the matter, drum roll, major verse in the whole study this morning. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You say, boy, if I'm just all preoccupied with God, I might not be able to take care of things as I should. Jesus says just the opposite is true. If you're occupied with God, God will take care of you. In contrast to the unsaved Gentiles who are preoccupied with making a living as if that is their whole purpose in life. In contrast, we see as God's people that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is a matter of first priority. Keep God first. The kingdom is to be top priority. 
The emphasis here is living in light of eternity. Uh, the kingdom ultimately is eternal. Ultimately, we're headed for the kingdom as the children of God. And therefore, we should live accordingly. It is kingdom truth that will endure forever. Really, there's only two things you can take with you, so to speak, into the kingdom, right? Uh, you know, you're not taking your uh, savings account on earth to heaven. I'm, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave it at the door. You can't take it into the kingdom. Only two things you can really take with you. Souls that are one are going to go with you into the kingdom. You know that? Uh, now, it's God who does the work in the hearts of people. But he uses us in that process. Isn't that an amazing thing? Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to seek and to save the lost. To save souls who can live forever in the kingdom. That's why he came. What's our mission? What did Jesus say? I will make you fishers of men. God's the ultimate soul winner, but he uses us in the process. Part of our mission is, is an extension of his mission, to see souls saved who will live forever in the kingdom. Seeking the kingdom first means making God's kingdom priorities our priorities. And God's priorities are souls. The other thing you can take with you is your reward for faithful, righteous living. This is the treasure Christ spoke of when he said, lay your treasures up in heaven in verse 20. The righteousness in view here is ethical righteousness related to right living. This counts before God. In Romans 14, 17 and 18, Paul wrote, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by man. Let's talk about this word righteousness for just a moment. In salvation, there is positional righteousness acquired at the moment of saving faith. And there is practical righteousness, which relates to our walk. As believers, we all have positional righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is our position in Christ as believers. We now have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. It's put to our account. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as, as, as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. How do you get this righteousness? Well, when you put your faith in Christ, it's put to your account. What we call imputed righteousness. That's the position of every believer in Jesus Christ. We all have positional rights. We are right before God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we receive it on the basis of faith. His faith is accounted for righteousness. But then there's the practical end. Now, now it's to be lived out in our lives. 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul writes to Timothy, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Practical sanctification or practical righteousness. First Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God wants you to live this way. Well, in view here in Matthew 6.33 is practical righteousness. We are to ever be seeking to apply God's righteousness to our life as his children. Seeking the kingdom first as a priority 
as fishers of men, seeking to win souls for the kingdom, and then seeking to lay up our treasure by way of righteous living is what it's all about. A spirit-filled Christian works hard to make a living, but in the process, his heart is really sold out to God and his purposes. He makes a living, but it's not his life. He doesn't live for it. He lives for God. And the difference is found in the heart. I have a friend who is a worker in a closed country. In other words, they don't, they don't allow missionaries in. So we don't call them missionaries, we call them workers. Well, he was sharing with me that uh, as, as he has a job, because you can't go in and say, they ask you after two weeks, what are you doing here? You know, uh, your, your visitor status has now expired. <laughs> so if you're staying there for a, a while, you need to have some reason why you're st- sticking around in the country. So he's got a job, right? He's got a, a job. Well, as he's going about selling his stuff and that, that he's involved in as far as his business on the side, uh, one of the natives one day approached him and said, uh, I know you've got this job, but that's not really why you're here. Oh, don't tell anybody. But that was interesting. He said, I know you sell this stuff, but your heart is really about serving your God. Wow. He came to see the real passion of his heart was not about just this stuff I'm selling. I got a deeper purpose here. This is the heart of the matter. What is the passion of my life? What is the priority of my life? God wants it to be his kingdom, living in light of eternity and his righteousness. And the exhortation to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first comes with a promise. You make God the priority, his kingdom, his righteousness, and there's a promise. Jesus says, if we do this, all these things shall be added to you. All these things are the necessities of life. He'll take care of you. You make God your priority. He'll take care of meeting your needs in keeping with his will and purpose for your life. Now, notice that contrary to the prosperity gospel teachers, Jesus does not say that God will provide the luxury items. You know, it's not their eating, drinking, clothing. He didn't say the finest of clothing. He didn't say you'll eat steak every day. No. He doesn't promise you wealth, but rather to meet your basic needs. We eat, what we eat, drink, and wear applies to the basic necessities of life, the basic essentials. D.A. Carson says, in the end, just as there are only two kinds of piety, the self-centered and the God-centered, so there are only two kinds of ambition. One can be ambitious either for oneself or for God. Well, here is the main point in this whole section. Jesus calls for his disciples to seek God first in their lives. God is to be our number one priority. And I'll leave that between you and him. Is he really uh, your number one priority? Is his kingdom emphasis your emphasis in terms of how you're living your life? I'm here to advance the cause of Christ. I'm on his page in terms of what I see in the New Testament. Verse 34, conclusion of the whole matter. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, will t- uh, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the third therefore in this section as seen in verse 25, 31, and 34. This threefold series of therefores serves to develop the main point that Christ is emphasizing. 
So note the flow of thought here. Therefore, consistent with the admonition to focus on things above, don't worry about the necessities of life. Verse 31, therefore, in light of the reality of God's care, don't worry about the necessities of life. And verse 34, therefore, in view of the fact that God knows your needs and has promised to provide if you seek him first, take one day at a time. Verse 34 is stated in in the the form of a proverb. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. This is now the third time in this section that Jesus says, do not worry. Three times. Again, verse 25, 31, 34. He made his point very clear. Do not worry. You are not called to worry. And the focus here in verse 34 is do not worry about tomorrow. And doesn't this really hit us right where we live? Most of us, what we worry about involves the future. We worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or in the future. And the mind has the tendency to conjure up the worst. The worst is really about to hit. You need to be very worried about this. And we had a a men's round table the other night, and we were discussing what to do if the government says you have to turn in all of your guns. Oh, and we were giving it some serious thought. No worries, of course. And then someone spoke up and said, we don't really have to concern ourselves with this right now because we aren't facing that extremity right at this moment. Well, boy, that's some real wisdom. Straight out of Matthew 6, 34. Don't worry and fret about what tomorrow may bring. Just take one day at a time. Now, you know, I don't know what they're going to do next week. They, they may come and take our guns next week. But for today, I, I, I don't think it's going to happen today. Isn't it good that God has just given us one day at a time to deal with? Just deal with one day at a time. And this teaches us that God's grace is dispensed as daily grace. He gives us grace day by day. You know, he doesn't give us a month's worth of grace for today. But rather just enough for today. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just unload it on you. A month's worth of grace for now. And come back next month and I'll give you another load. No, no, no. Day by day. Grace for today. Strength for today. One day. And the next day. You say, well, God, I'm here, but you didn't show. No, he's there. He'll be there. Grace for that day. And grace for the day at a time. That's how you are to live your life. One day at a time. And this uh, is an important teaching. James says, we don't even know if we're going to live tomorrow. Stop fretting and being all worried about tomorrow. Just focus on today. It's great wisdom to live by. Well, let me ask you, can you trust God for all eternity? I mean, for all eternity. Can you trust God for eternity? Well, that's, that's, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I wonder, in light of that, if you can trust him for tomorrow. Well, yes, of course. So just as he says... We need to deal with today's problems. We can leave tomorrow's problems for tomorrow. Note again, Jesus is dealing with worry. As we study the whole counsel of God, there's a place for planning. 
Paul made travel plans. In that sense, he was thinking about tomorrow. But he wasn't fretting and worrying over it. So yeah, there's a place for proper planning, place for being responsible, all of those things, proper concerns, all that. But not sinful fretting and worrying over it. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And all God's people said, amen, amen. In this, Jesus recognizes that we will have troubles. You know, Jesus didn't promise us a a trouble-free experience. Come to me and you'll have no more troubles. Oh, no, no, no. He says, just take them one day at a time. Don't borrow from tomorrow's trouble. Should there even be a tomorrow? No, that's too much. It's too heavy for you. Just deal with today's issues. Leave tomorrow to tomorrow. Again, not saying that there isn't a place for wise planning. He's dealing with the issue of worry. D.A. Carson, he is implicitly teaching that even for his disciples, today's grace is sufficient only for today and should not be wasted on tomorrow. If tomorrow does bring new trouble, there will be new grace to meet it. You know, they do studies on everything. I mean, poll studies, stats, whatever. They do studies on everything. But I've read about studies where they, they found that a high percentage of what people worry about never comes to pass. Here they spend all this time worrying about something that turns out to be a total non-issue. Talk about folly. That's counterproductive. Warren Wiersbe says, Someone has said that the average person is crucifying himself between two thieves. The the regrets of yesterday and the worries of tomorrow. Two thieves. Regrets of yesterday, the worries of tomorrow. It's right to plan for the future and even to save for the future, but it is sin to worry about the future and permit tomorrow to rob today of its blessings. Ah, there's good wisdom there. What a great time for this study this morning, I, I think. Always a good time for this study. But the whole country does seem to be going to hell in a handbasket. Listen to some of the headlines from just this past week. It's enough to drive you to worry. These are just some headlines I picked out. Biden eyeing tax rate as high as 43.4%. I am worried. The federal government flexes its uh, coercive powers against a Christian university. Imagine that in a Christian country. Oh, that's right. Post, post. We're we're on the other side of that. Uh, Iranian mullahs, desperate for a deal. Biden team looks too eager to make concessions. Variants will gradually erode immunity. I was talking to somebody worried this week, said, I heard we're going to have to get a shot every six months. And I said, well, let's worry about it together. No, I didn't say that. But there's so many things to worry you. If you spend more time listening to the news than you do listening to God, you're probably going to be full of worry. It's what the world does. They worry, 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 worry. Talk radio will worry you to death. I mean, these people are worried. And they'll scare you. Turn off the news. Turn on to God. Listen to what Jesus says in our text today. Let me summarize. Don't worry. You got that point, right? Don't worry. Your father God providentially cares for birds and flowers, and you are much more valuable to him than they are. I want you to seriously think about that. 
See that bird out on your lawn? Does God care more about that bird than he does you? Or does he care more about you than the bird? Worry can't bring about any positive changes. It's just a waste of time at, at best. And really, it's negative. Worry shows a lack of faith. God knows what you need. Seek God first and he will take care of your needs. And take one day at a time. The Bible says to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is spiritually and mentally healthy. Right after telling us not to worry about anything, but instead to pray about everything, right in that same immediate context, Paul said this. And so a lot of us have memorized this verse. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, if there is any virtue and if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Meditate on these things. A Christian lady called herself, quote, a professional worrier. Boy, you're, you're working at worrying when you're a professional worrier. Uh, I would think somebody must be paying her if she's professional. But anyway, she called herself a professional warrior. And one day she said she was facing a, a medical test that caused her to be frantic with fear. Well, she decided as a Christian that during this test, which was terrifying her, that she would focus on the first five words, just the first five words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And as she did that, she said, it was amazing what a calming effect it had on her soul. You see, worry is thinking about a problem over and over in your mind to where it consumes you. By the way, if you know how to worry, you already know how to meditate. <laughs> You're just meditating on the wrong thing. God wants us to meditate on him and his word. I like what Ruth Graham Bell said when she said, quit studying the problems and start studying the promises. Focus on God. You know what you discover as you mature in your Christian life? God is everything to us for time and eternity. Focus on God. Pray and set your mind on things above. Keep the focus. The Lord is my shepherd. God is bigger than all of our worries. We can trust him with everything. God help us to do it. Let's stand and have our closing song.